You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey, one and all, it's episode 141 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast, and we are brought to you today by our beautiful, sexy, good-smelling, well-endowed, extremely fertile Patreon patrons. And my chair is squeaking. Why is my chair squeaking? I don't know. I should edit that out, but you know what? I'm not that professional. Anyway. Alright, so what we are talking about tonight is uh, Levi actually sends us a voicemail. Can you believe that? We finally get a voicemail after all these months. And uh, he is talking about one of his first memories for Warhammer and uh, how he cherishes it, and it's a nice memory of his. He also warns us not to do Salvia. <laughs> so, um, and we are also talking about this very long-named dice set for Underworld. It's Underworld's Dire Chasm uh, all Undead Soul Blight Blood Coven Throne Dice Set. I don't know what it is. It's a super long name. Whether, we, whether or not we want that. And then we finally have our real talk with the Pimcron where, you know, I got I got thinking the other day and I was like, you know, there's got to be other Tyranid bioforms that we've never heard of. And I looked them up and sure enough, there's plenty of Tyranid bioforms that do not have models for various reasons or they did have some god awful epic models at one point. So um, that's pretty interesting to take a trip down memory lane and get into that. So I learned a lot. Hopefully you will, too. And a lot of them are but ugly. What have I been up to? Well, my work is in full swing now. And that's just, just, just fantastic. And also, been talking, uh, been working on the Brutality Supplement a lot. I'm trying to work on it every single night of the week so that I can get this done on time. And I'm on page, like, 66 out of 100-ish. Um, once I format it and everything, it's going to expand anyway. So I'll probably have like 80 pages. And then once you add pictures and format it properly and all that stuff gets spaced out. But, um, anyway, so I'm, I'm working hard on that. And also probably something I shouldn't have been wasting time on is the next supplement that's due at the end of this year and basically it's mass battle games like warhammer um more or less like fantasy or mantics uh kings of war but it's brutality rules for large-scale battles and then there's also brutality rules for ship specifically spaceship battles and there's brutality rules for what i was working on this week was the big mech or uh kaiju what's it i can't think of the word the whatever the giant monster battles and the giant mech battles so um i am very pleased to announce that the extremely balanced brutality skirmish war game and i'm not just bull bull you here um the extremely balanced brutality skirmish war game rules are still extremely balanced even when i'm tweaking them in different ways it's essentially the core of the same game but different things are used in different ways and i played three games this week um with my friend tj and he brought a big Gundam, like a mobile suit from the original Gundam show. And believe it or not, as massive as it was compared to my Mech Warrior stuff, it was actually to scale. Because I took my little people and he could open the cockpit of, of his model 
and the little people in the model were roughly the same size, so this is actually to scale. And basically the way the brutality um, Big Mech and Monster module goes is that, you know, you normally buy people for your warband, like a fighter or a marksman or an icon or whatever, and they get upgraded and they have different powers. Um, well, what happens for this version of it is, is that you can, let's say you have a big mech with a big chainsaw arm and a cannon. Okay, well, you could, if you wanted to, essentially pay for two people, a ranged person and a melee person, and smash them together, combine their hit points, combine their attacks and all that, and each one of those modules gets to activate in the combat phase. Now, they only get one movement phase, so the model moves on its own, but what's really cool is that TJ shoved four modules together and made a massive, uh, what, six-point model. Just one model was his Gundam, six points. And I had a whole warband of six point people that were all, uh, that was three of them. And um, so ultimately it was six points on either side, but he had one huge dude and I had three smaller people. Well, he kicked my butt the first game and I'm thinking, oh gee, you know, here, here it is. I guess being a huge model is a huge advantage and the game's not balanced. And I said, well, you know, TJ, just um, what I always do when I'm playtesting something, because you don't know if something's a fluke or you rolled bad or you rolled really well or whatever, I always play two or three times with the same exact lists in the same exact deployment and just make maybe different decisions or something like that. Um, and that's what we did for the second game. And the second game, my three little guys beat his one big guy. So he beat me the first game and I beat him the second game. That seems pretty even. That means that the big guy isn't... Um, you know, infallible or whatever, putting four modules together to make one big guy is not, you know, a big deal. Whereas my guys might have only had three hit points or six hit points. His guy had 12 hit points. And uh, it was it was pretty gross, but it was a heck of a lot of fun. Then he had to go, so I ended up playing a game by myself. And it was like, I don't know, 11 points per side, something like that. The points will end up being higher because you smash so many models what would normally be single models into one or you know whatever so i played a nice mixture of tanks and mechs and a helicopter and a bunch of troops and whatnot and i mashed them together and both sides were extremely different one of them was more ranged one was more melee and the end score was four to four and a half so that, once again, is pretty darn balanced, and I'm pretty happy for it. So um, I'm also balanced that the little guys, I've got those little mech warrior troops, and it's like five little teeny, I think they're six millimeter or eight millimeter, something like that, little teeny guys. And they're all one hit point, and they cost half a point. And you, can up, you can't upgrade them, but you can change model traits, model abilities. And I love to give them two six-inch ranged attacks which basically would be missile launchers because they're fighting big mechs and uh, they can, they can put in some work and they're a real nuisance because sometimes you get lucky. I had this rampager with double chain. He's actually a forestry mech, right? It's for cutting down trees. And he had two arms. One was a big long chainsaw and the other one was like a buzzsaw and he's a rampager. And I found a line that I could, 
um, charge one group of troops, and if I win, which was likely, and kill them, I'm gonna tr- I can pile into another group of troops, and if I kill them, which is likely, I'll be able to pile into another tank, and then another tank. So he was literally going to rampage. And he killed the first unit, which was pretty much expected, and then he piled into the second unit, and believe it or not, they made all their saves. Despite only having one hit point and a save of four, they made every single one of their saves, and it put his rampage to an end. So, it's kind of funny how they can be like a little wild card, and it's just a bunch of little guys fighting big mechs, but um, it was very fun. And so far, I've played four test games of it, and all of them were extremely close. So that's very promising for me. And it's been a blast digging through this big box of Mech Warrior stuff and finding mechs that I want to play with and then figuring out how I want to, you know, stat them out, kit them out or whatever. All right, well, I guess I'll wrap this up. Let's get on with the show. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. Hey, this is the Tesseract mailbox. Guess what? Much to my amazement, after so many months of the phone not ringing at the old Pimpcron headquarters, we actually have a voicemail from Levi, and he is my brother from another mother, because I've said before that I was almost named Levi, but I wasn't. My parents changed my name at the last minute, so... Uh, Anyway, this is a voicemail from Levi. Let's listen to him. He's the one that we've been talking to about the... Daughters of Cain and the Hedonites of Slanesh, and trying to give some advice, best as we can, to him. And uh, let's listen to what he has to say. Hey, Dan. It's uh, Levi from Hemet. And I'm calling in today because I wanted to ask you if you could recall some of your early hobby memories from when you first started getting into this bullshit. You know, personally, for me, ten years ago, uh, a youth group, a special friend of mine uh, wasn't uh, like you know special, but you know sports guy. He uh, he the one that introduced me to Warhammer, and I remember he told me about orcs, and that was a treat. So I went over to his house, and we were in his garage. You know, he had like a four hose hookah, and this was like back in like fifth edition. You know, it was ten years ago, and I was you know he had like a whole holy painted Blood Angels army and a whole painted Eldar army and a whole painted Tyranid army. And, I, you know, I was flabbergasted. Absolutely impressed. And I, I played my first game and smoked my first hookah, and I played as uh, Eldar. And my first move ever in Warhammer is on my squad of rangers. I had five of them. And uh, I rolled five fives and when I called a hit on a squad of Space Marines. And I made him hit the deck. I rolled five fives in my first game of Warhammer ten years ago. And absolutely exhilarating. It was also the first time I ever smoked salvia. That was weird. Uh, don't do that. Uh-huh. Anyway, yeah, so, you know, Pimcon, do you have any cool memories like that? Uh, and I was just wondering that. I uh, hope you have a good week. Hope I didn't send this in too late. And uh, thanks for always answering my questions. You're a cool guy. Bye. <laughs> Well, first off, it makes me really happy. You're like, well, don't do that. <laughs> I, uh, no, I've never, never tried salvia. No, that's not something that's up my alley. Uh, I had, I had a friend trying to get me into that one time and I'm like, oh, hard pass, bro. So no, I've never done that. Um, it does sound like you had fun though. And, you know, apparently it's, it's embarked you on this 10 year, uh, path into Warhammer. And it's weird how you say somebody from our youth group, because, 
It's not something I know it happens, but I guess I'm in that old school thinking that like, oh, youth group. Oh, well, nobody would play a grim dark game like that. But uh, come to think of it, I just met a pastor recently and um, it's a friend of my family, whatever. And uh, he used to be huge into magic, Magic the Gathering, and loved it, and he's into anime, and uh, we've been talking about Avatar The Last Airbender, and all sorts of stuff, so it's just funny that it's like, you know, these newer generations of people that, uh, I don't know, they're just more normal, I guess you'd say, but um, thank you very much for the compliment, I greatly appreciate it, and I appreciate you listening to the show. Um, I would have to say something that really, really, one of my earliest memories of Warhammer, and I think I've been in it 11-ish years now, maybe 12, and, uh, the, one of my biggest memories that really stick out in my mind, of course, you know, you're blown away by all the miniatures and the models and all that stuff, it's really cool when you first get into it, but the thing that really blew me away is when we had our first store tournament, uh, my friend Bliggity Blam Steve, he had a bunch of terrain, and he had, like, those, uh, I don't know if you remember or not, the old battle boards. Before Game Mat EU and all the game mats existed, the mouse pad material mats, Games Workshop actually had this 4 by 6 they were each two-foot squares, of the, like, pre-molded plastic hills and things like that. And my friend Steve had, like, three or four of them. And we only had, like, eight people in our group or something like that anyway. And we decided that we were going to have a tournament, and I did not know what to expect out of it because I had only been playing for a short time. But he said, "Oh yeah, I gotta get the, you know, gotta get you into a tournament, you know, to be a lot of fun." So I don't remember how I placed in that tournament. That's completely irrelevant. But it was my first tournament. But what really blew me away about that first tournament was the level and quality of the terrain and of the battle boards because I had never played on a battle board before. And Bliggity Blam Steve had really, really amazingly painted terrain. And I was used to playing with, like, cardstock buildings or, you know, um, electrical outlet boxes painted t- gray or whatever. And that particular store was really bad for terrain. They would use, like, um, green felt as, like, a woods. And he's like, yeah, this is just woods. If you're in there, you're in cover. And this blue circle of felt is water. You know, that sort of thing. It was uh, not very good. So when Bliggity Blam Steve brought all of his stuff there, I, we had kind of made an agreement with a restaurant because there was a restaurant next door and they would like let us... I don't I don't know if we paid to use it or what, but for this tournament, we were able to use their tables and we set up in there. And just getting all the terrain out, I was just blown away. I had never seen real G- Games Workshop buildings that were painted. I had never seen battle boards before and battle boards, all of his were flocked and painted and... It was, it was, it's weird because I was an adult when I found Warhammer, so I was in my 20s, so it's not like I was a child, but you know how you lock away those memories of childhood and they like, they make you happy and they're really like, where the world was still full of mystery and everything was fantastical and everything seemed really cool. Well, for some reason, that memory of me walking up in that bar and, or that restaurant, and he's got all these beautifully painted and terrained tables, I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that the hobby could be that cool looking, and really, really immersive, and uh, that's just one of the memories that, that greatly stick out to me, is that it was just, it, just amazing, and you know, you always use the theater of the mind, like, uh, not everybody has the best terrain, and not all your armies are painted, and 
blah blah blah. So you gotta imagine a bunch of stuff when you're playing Warhammer. You gotta pretend these guys are shooting these guys or whatever. But being that it was before mats were a thing, I really feel like, and I finally feel like an old person, because I was telling one of the new players, this was within the last year, I was telling one of the new players, I'm like, yeah, you know, you see this mat? You know how our game store has mats on every single table? Uh, mats didn't exist when I first started playing Warhammer. You see these washes? Yeah, washes didn't exist when I first started playing Warhammer. Um, you see this contrast paint? Yeah, yeah, that didn't exist. Uh, do you see these technical paints? Yeah, yeah, that that didn't exist either. You see these colored primers? Uh, I'm pretty sure, or at least I didn't see them. If they did exist, like yellow primer from a uh, army painter and things like that, pretty sure they didn't exist. But it's so funny they take it for granted. Like the whole level of our community, the terrain has gotten more plentiful. Way more stores and companies like GameAnt.eu and others are making terrain now that's available to people, and then these game mats are the cheapest and easiest way to make your table look really good. So I feel like a lot of the new players are very spoiled in the fact that, oh, well, every board has a high-quality printed mouse pad mat on it, and every board's got tons of buildings, dude. We had green felt and blue felt, and that's basically what we had. At some point, the store... Um, this was store number one. At some point, the store splurged for some storage containers, like from a railroad set. And I remember saying, oh my god, what is in these storage containers that we fight about each week? Like, what, <laughs> what is so valuable about these storage containers? And why doesn't any of our forces ever finally capture them? Because every board at that point was green felt, blue felt, and storage containers. And uh, it made it very, very dry. But... So, you were talking about your first experience, and that is one of my... Well, it is my first experience with a, terrain, uh, with a tournament. And I just never knew the hobby could be brought to such a cool level. And it really sparked my imagination. And I really remember having a really cool, cool time with my friends. And, of course, you know, we got to eat in that restaurant at some point during the tournament or after the tournament. And it was just... It was fantastic. Really, really good memory. So that would be one of my memories. Um, the other memory would be that when I first came there, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything about the game. I wasn't introduced from a friend. I just like found it myself and joined a club, and or at least started coming to the club, and um, asking everybody like, "Whoa, what is what is an Eldar? Like, what is this thing? Or you know, what's a Necron? Or whatever?" And um, just. It's weird because, like I said, I was an adult at that point, but I still feel like I was a little kid back then because there was all this like, oh my gosh, you know, the hobby, you can do so much creativity in this hobby from the terrain to the boards to the miniatures to all that. And then, you know, all of your first steps and trying to paint models and you might not be very good at it, but you get better and all of that. It's just, it's got a special place in my heart because this has been a big part of my life and uh, it's it's good memories, so... Levi, I appreciate you sharing with us, and I appreciate that uh, you made me think about all these good memories from all those years ago. So, I guess every day somebody's making some good memories like that when they get in the hobby and it's all brand new to them. But anyway, that's it for Tesseract Mailbox this week, and thanks again, Levi, for contacting us and keeping the conversation going. You can reach me at pimpcron at gmail.com or facebook.com slash pimcron, and I will see you on the other side of this music. Want that, or want that not? 
This week for Want That or Want That Not, we're covering the dire, the Warhammer Underworld's Dire Chasm, Grand Alliance, Death Dice Pack. Whew. Hold on. Oh, man. That was a... Man, I forgot what I already said. That was a long title. Warhammer Underworld's Darkasm Grand Alliance Death Dice Pack Whew, I gotta exercise more. So, <laughs> the Warhammer Underworld's Darkasm Grand Alliance Death Dice Pack. Good God. Alright, well, I am actually getting a little lightheaded from all that heavy breathing. <laughs> Uh, who knew that little hyperventilating over dice would give you a little bit of a rush? I am accidentally doing that. So for $30, they've got these dice they're selling, right? It's uh, 20 dice. You're their usual 30 bucks for 20 dice. It's like whatever. And it's for Warhammer Underworlds. But the funny thing is, is when I first saw this, being that I don't play Underworlds, I was like, oh, okay, so they've got a Sigmaid Hammer. And that's, I guess, either like the six or the one. And then there's an excl- exclamation point. Oh, that must be the the one, the six. I don't know. So then they've got, wait, they got two crosses crossed, uh, two swords crossed, uh, and a spiral, and a targeting reticle. What? What the f- Oh, oh, these aren't regular dice. These are not... I just assumed that Warhammer Underworlds used D6s that had pips on them, and they don't. So I'm going to make this a want that not, because I was duped into looking at dice that I have no use for. And honestly, I feel like that's on them. To be honest, though, uh, (laughs) this dice set is a little weird, and even though it doesn't have pips on it, right? It's Underworlds, whatever. But the weird thing about this dice, and I don't know if there's a reason for it or not, but it's actually three different color schemes on these dice. And they go from awesome, beautiful, to kind of neat, to horrendous. And I, as I get older, I like really high contrast dice. I like sharp colors, and I like all of that. So there's these dark purple with the inset being white. Dark purple glossy dice. I love them. They're beautiful. If they were regular d6 dice with pips on them i would consider buying them but you only get a handful of those then they go to these they've got four of these weirdly blue swirly dice that are kind of cool looking to be honest with you but it's got a purple accent you know like the symbols are purple on this light blue and to be honest it's okay i like the light blue i wish it was more high contrast like if the marks were white like on the purple dice that would be great but the purple and blue are just okay. Not not super thrilled, but the blue is real swirly, and that's kind of pretty. So, you know, that's I give that a pass a bit. Then we get to the absolute stupid, ugly, I hate them dice, which I, number one, have never been a fan of speckled dice, especially when the inset is not a very contrasting color. And these are like marble colored. They're like cookies and cream. They're, col- they're covered in a black and white speckling, this third set, that's part of this whole dice set. And they're black and white speckled with a light purple inlay. And I gotta tell you, black and white speckled does not go well at all 
with a light purple inlay. Now, admittedly, probably white wouldn't work well with it either, but they could find some sort of, you know, like a dark black or maybe a bright red. Anything else could would work well for them. But sometimes, sometimes I get the feeling like GW kind of gets sick of making dice. So they're like, you know what? For this set, let's go crazy. Let's let's make let's bring in the cookies and cream plastic. Let's make dice for these. Um, and occasionally you see something that completely breaks the mold like that as far as some weird looking concept, some weird looking color scheme. And I'm not a fan of it at all. So needless to say, this is a want that not for me because I don't play Warhammer Underworlds and there's no pips on these dice. And I'm slightly offended that they would make me look at it when there were no pips to be had, frankly, to be honest. They were being a tease. That's on them. But those purple dice, man, whoo, those purple dice are beautiful. Love them. Um, so I think they should uh, make a whole set of just the purple dice and put pips on them because they're beautiful. Glossy and purple. Love them. Anyway, no, I'm not buying this set. It's stupid. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimpcron. Hey, everybody. It's Real Talk with the Pimpcron. And this week, I got it up my butt that I wanted to look up the different bioforms of the Tyranids. And come to find out, there's a lot of biomorphs. Not biomorphs, bioforms. Biomorphs. Now, this is something that kept messing me up. Biomorphs are the actual weaponry that are the symbiotes that are attached to the, the creatures. The bioforms are the actual different ways that Tyranids, as a fleet of organisms, adapt and present themselves. And they're usually highly specialized in one way, and it's, it's super interesting to read about. So let's, let's get into it. Of course, there's like a million different types that we have heard of, so I'm just going to gloss over things like that. But one of the things that I thought that was actually pretty interesting is ether swimming broods. And you might go, ether swimming brood? What the hell is that? So an ether swimming brood is basically attack craft-sized tyranids that can survive the void of space. So you know, tyranids have these giant bioships that can obviously exist in space without dying. And they're living creatures. Well, these things are basically like the stingers of a jellyfish or something like that, where they just shoot out and they attack um, crafts and they try to burrow into them and destroy them and all of that. So I thought ether swimming broods are something I had never, ever heard of. thought it was pretty neat. So if they are the attack crafts, then you'd think, well, what is the boarding craft? Well, believe it or not, I can tell you. It's called a boarding worm. And it's a giant, fleshy organism that can contain several smaller organisms in it. And basically, it gets launched out, and it looks like a giant leech. It gets launched out of one of the ports of one of the bigger bioship. And it is essentially like a leech, where it's got teeth and a mouth that will bore into a side of a ship. And in its belly, it serves one purpose, to eat through the hull of a ship and then literally throw up Tyranids. <laughs> it's like, imagine this thing had some bad shrimp, right? And it's it runs over to the trash can, it bores a hole in the side of the trash can, and then it just disgorges all of its shrimp that it ate that was bad. And um, they say that they can actually hold like a bunch of hormigons or termagons or gene stealers or whatever, but it can even carry things as large as carnifexes, which is pretty crazy. Um, so that's a good way... 
It, that's a very good way to get your ship infected by Carnifexes very quickly, is a boarding worm. As for even weirder ships, the next ship I want to talk about is the Narval. And the Narval, if you know the Tyranids do not use the warp such as Chaos and such as um, the Imperium does for faster-than-light travel, they use Narval ships. And these are basically super tiny, completely unassuming, small ships that can, of course, they are living, and of course they do exist in space totally fine and basically they've got all these spines on the front of their face and these little whiskers and these little whiskers can um read a ton of sensory information from a very very far distance and they can read basically the gravitational pull of planets and things like that don't ask me to understand it or explain it to you very well but that's basically what they say and Basically, what it does is it creates this bubble, this compressed bubble of reality and space and all the ships that are around it. It basically makes a slipstream and it somehow uses the gravity through this slipstream of that planet that it's targeting. And that's basically how they do faster than light travel. So they're not going into the warp like that. They're not going into warp necessarily like Star Trek. Um, they are somehow creating a corridor between them and the planets they're targeting. But the problem is there's apparently a side effect to this, and the Narval cannot get really close to systems. That's why systems still get a lot of time. The Narval, this compression of gravity really messes with it, and it gets all drunk and crazy. So, <laughs> basically, it can get them... It stops before it gets into the actual system. So, it'll it'll calls a corridor, a slipstream, whatever you want to call it, and all these ships go with it down this corridor of gravity towards the planet, but it has to stop outside the system, and then they kind of just have to fly in like a normal ship would, because it just can't get that close. So it seems to me like they hop and skip and jump from planet to system to system to planet, etc. And that's basically what it is. But that's also pretty interesting. Um, I I've never heard of anything like that, and I always did, I knew they didn't use warp travel, but I did not know exactly how they did faster than light travel, but apparently it is these little teeny narval ships, and they oftentimes aren't even equipped with any weapons or anything like that, they're just like little teeny, um, completely unassuming ships that you might not even see among all these giant bio ships. So moving out of space and onto planets, the next thing I want to discuss is some of the giant bio-titans that the Tyranids have. Now, we all know about the Heriofent, right? Because that's the one that G Forge World sells and all that. But there's actually another one that is pretty massive. And I think it only existed in Epic. I don't think they ever actually made a giant model for the Dominatrix. But it's the Dominatrix. And essentially, you know how the Synapse creatures are a hub for the psychic power of the fleet. Well, the Dominatrix is actually a larger version of that. So if you think about like a substation for electricity, you've got the small things, let's say Tyranid Warriors, that are a small hub, like a little Wi-Fi signal of Synapse. Then you've got the larger things such as Zoanthropes or Hive Tyrants, and they produce a larger bubble of Synapse. Well, then above them is the Dominatrix, and the Dominatrix is larger than a super heavy tank, but that's all I could find. I couldn't actually find how large it is, but they say it's larger than um, like a Bane Blade or something like that. And they say it's completely covered in different guns and biocannons and things like that, and it's just as smart as a Hive Tyrant. 
So it's not some big, like, non-thinking giant monster. It's actually incredibly clever. And it just serves to even control the hive tyrants to a degree. So it, it's the even larger bubble when they're doing a mass attack. The dominatrix is there. And um, if you actually ever look up the model from Epic, it's a very stupid looking model. It's probably back from third edition when the Tyranids all look like goofy nerds that all look like they're making that yeah, yeah face. They look kind of like rats with the big buck teeth and all of that. Um, the Dominatrix definitely looks like it's from that era, if you ever look at the Epic model, and it's pretty dumb looking. But anyway, that's basically it. Um, it's another larger version of the Synapse Wi-Fi that you might find on the battlefield. Now, next up is something I actually thought was pretty interesting. There are several other different Bio-Titans that have been introduced in the lore, but not necessarily where you think. There's something called a Nautiloid and a, uh, what was it called, a, a Viragon and a Vitiator, and all those were introduced in the Warhammer 40k collectible card game, but there's no actual lore information whatsoever about them. So, one looks like a, a snail, like a Nautilus snail, one burrows under the ground, and one does, I don't know, something else. I mean, they they had really no inter information. Uh, there's also a Vermis-class Bio-Titan, and that was in a novel sometime. It got aced by a um, uh, Void Missile, I think it was, but uh, basically it, it wasn't much description to it. Um, that's funny, too, because, you know, there's even smaller Tyranids that are like the size of like an Exocrine or a uh, Harrisbux. And there's one that I kind of wish they made a model for, the Cerebor. The Cerebor is also from the collectible card game for 40k, and it is actually a, essentially a Rhino for Tyranids, and it's a ground transport for Tyranids. And it's armored, and it looks about the size of an Exocrine and whatnot, but I just thought it was pretty interesting that they actually gave them a Rhino, basically. And next up, we're just getting back into stupid, stupid-looking territory. It's another one of these stupid epic models, and it's a Dactylus. If you don't know what a Dactylus is, you should look it up. The artwork for them is even stupider than the model, to be honest with you. But a Dactylus is a large creature about the size of an Exocrine, something like that. <laughs> Do you ever wish your Tyranids had catapults? Catapults that threw slime balls... Yeah, well, this one is essentially like a lobster, but instead of two giant claws, it has these real weird, flimsy arms that reach on its back and pull off these nasty slime balls and then launch them at people. So just imagine some fat nerd popping zits and flicking them at you. That's basically what this thing is, and it's got two giant gangly arms that make it look so stupid. But there actually was an epic model for it, and there is some artwork for it, and um, it was also in Chapter Approved 2001, and I guess that was for um, Epic. I have no idea what that was for, but I just thought that was pretty interesting. Some of these, I guess it's pretty hard to design Tyranid models and make them look cool, but also alien, because this definitely looks alien, but it does not look cool, not in any sense of the word. And then we come to its brother, which is the Malefactor, and it's just as <laughs> stupid looking as it sounds, it basically, it's a, it's like another transport like that other one, and there's very little known about it, and it's just got these big old gangly arms as well with spikes on them, and it's got this like smiling mouth, 
It's it's very, very stupid looking. So I'm very happy that GW has actually taken the route with the aesthetic for Tyranids that they have because this third edition stuff was so, so ugly. And the next idea is pretty stupid as well. I guess this is a, a problem Tyranids have. There's a Laius Horror, right? I guess I'm pronouncing it Laius Horror. I have no idea. But anyway, this one is just another stupid idea that the Tyranids had, or that Games Workshop had for the Tyranids. The poor, poor Tyranids. And essentially, this is like a Moloch type creature, and it was described in stories, so they don't really have a picture for it, but it's essentially like a Moloch creature. They say it's about a third of the size, uh, larger than a Carnifex. And it's somehow, <laughs> this sounds like something from a comic book. This is like something from a DC comic. This Laius Horror is the one third larger than a Carnifex, but it's somehow shrinks down in order like the size of a ripper swarm in order to get inside a human host and then it lets the human host carry it to like a more populated area and then it bursts out of the human host as it regains its normal size and i've already lost interest in this thing i have no idea why they would go this route and do this thing but it's just it's stupid anytime you're talking about something that is way bigger than a carnifex, but also small enough to fit in a person. I just, there's a, um, a certain amount of suspension of disbelief that you have to do. And it's just, that's, I think that's a bridge too far for me personally. Now, as we leave the stupid categories of Tyranids, this one's actually pretty grim dark, and it's pretty cool. We're talking about little things the size of rippers called cortex leeches. And basically what they do, instead of, you know, the rippers essentially just rip you apart and eat you because they want to consume the biomass, and then a larger creature eats them and throws them up in the gene pool or whatever. But the cortex leech actually has these tendrils that come out of its arms, and they shove themselves into the host's eyes, ears, and mouth. And basically they can control you like a puppet. And that is pretty metal. That is very, very metal. It's essentially like a Ripper Swarm, but a specialized Ripper Swarm, because, you know, Tyranids like to specialize in things. And uh, that is pretty cool. And uh, that's that's basically it. Um, that's all for the... Um, that's all for the different types of Tyranids that I personally had never heard of. And I thought it was pretty interesting. By the way, the word is reclamation pool. It's not biomass pool or whatever I said. But um, it's, it's very interesting. The whole Tyranid thing is pretty neat to me. All the different specializations and the different classes and the hierarchy of it and whatnot. Um, they talk a lot about the Norn Queen, and I don't exactly know what that is. I mean, I know it's like the psychic hub for everything, but I'm not entirely sure if there's just one Norn Queen or there's many. But I just thought it might be interesting to go over the different bioforms that I had never heard of and exactly things that we don't have models for and, and things like that. Obviously, I've glossed over all the things that we do have models for, but um, that was it. Once in a blue moon, I kind of want to talk about something lore related, and I thought this was kind of neat. So maybe you should go look up some of these because they are stupid looking. Anyway, thank you so much to GameMat.eu for <laughs> GameMat.eu for supporting the show. And go check them out for pre-painted terrain and battle mats. And thank you so much to all my beautiful, good-smelling, sexy patrons on Patreon. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I truly do appreciate it. I will see you next week.